don't leave, don't leave, or, or hang around. <laughs> I've been studying up, as I told you last week, this book called The Moral Molecule. And the research that's being done on actually, on an endocrine level, what happens in you when you do something uh, generous, when you do something uh, altruistic, you do something for somebody else, when you trust somebody else, your endocrines change. Your whole endocrine system is active all the time, and particularly it, uh, it producing those kinds of hormones associated, like oxytocin and assorted hormones just like that, which are the hormones that make you relational and um, the condition relationship uh, of mutuality. Oxytocin is what comes up in women just when they've delivered a baby. So you look at this baby and you love it more than anything in the whole world. And it's the most beautiful. And you could recognize it out of the whole nursery in one second because you really take a picture of it in your mind. You know it. And you love it and you want to feed it and take care of it. And you didn't know it 10 minutes before. But it becomes very important to you. Oxytocin, when it's following sexual experiences that are gratifying arises in both partners and they both look better to each other and they and both and I mean speaking plainly maybe I shouldn't put this on here speaking <laughs> plainly people who have are in a relationship that has a certain amount of tension in it whose relationship doesn't have tension in it following a mutually pleasurable sexual encounter the stuff that gets on your nerves is less irritating in that moment if you think about they never put the top on the toothpaste. They never clean up their side of the room. And I say, well, how cute. They never put the top on the suitcase. <laughs> yeah, because, because in the same time, they are the people associated with those good feelings of oxytocin. Seriously, the mind really picks out. And it, it's on its own self. It knows what makes it feel good. It's a very interesting book. We'll talk more about it. But it talks, uh, the particular thing that I've been focusing on is the good feelings that come up in people after they have been generous. Not only when someone's been generous to them, but after they themselves have been generous. And in all the ways that I read it, because it balances with all the other hormones, it comes out that in moments of generosity, they happen because we're not frightened. That in a moment of generosity, one has to feel, I can give this away, I have enough. I, whatever it is, when you give something away, you feel, I have enough. Um, my friend Sharon Salzberg used to tell a story about, she was coming home from, Europe, from Asia one time, from studying there for some period of time. And I know it's already 10 and we didn't sit. We'll sit different. Life changes, you know, things change. She was coming home from Asia, and someone said to her, uh, when you get back to the Bay Area, I'm giving you this envelope of, here's an envelope of money, and when you're walking around downtown Berkeley, give this to homeless people. They distribute it to homeless people. So she said, of course, and took the envelope, and it was a you know, regular letter-sized envelope, but it was quite fat. So she thought, well, it must be a lot of dollar bills in here. So she just tucked it into the bottom of her purse and carried it back to Berkeley and waited until she got ready to go out in the street, and then she went out in the street, and opened her envelope of dollar bills and found that they were $20 bills. She was quite surprised, but her mandate was to give them out to homeless people in Berkeley. So you suddenly say, whoa, $20, now I'm giving away a great deal of money. But then she thought, well, it's not my money. 
And it was the mandate is give this out. So I can. So she did. She said no, she had half of Berkeley following her down the street. <laughs> and people were so happy. With, because for a homeless person to find a $20 bill is an enormous thing. And she said, you know, there, there was a piece in her that didn't think, oh, I should keep this for me, but wow, I'm, you know, just, this is fantastic. And she said, I could do it because it wasn't mine. And I didn't have it before I had it, before they gave me the envelope. I didn't have it. It was just an envelope that I was carrying that I was mandated to give out. So I'm just really the distributor of the envelope. It isn't even my personal generosity or someone else's personal generosity. But to be part of that cycle of generosity, she said the whole thing was completely thrilling to have the experience of not minding giving away quite a lot. And I think, if I think about it, it's not, not just on the level of it's a nice thing, but on the level of it, some, some relationship to I don't have to be worried. I don't have to be frightened. What about me? And I, I used to think about, we used to talk on, 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 in class here on Wednesday sometimes about what if he won the publisher's clearinghouse and what if his, whatever his name was, what was his name he used to knock on the door? Ed McMahon. Ed McMahon, knock, knock, knock. Uh, publisher's clearinghouse, here I am. He has a check for $10 million. And people jump up and down and they get all excited and you feel excited for them. And then you have a thought. Tell me if you don't have this thought. What if it was me? You know, I've sent in stuff to publishing. I don't do, you know, not in a while, but I have in my life sent in. Well, what if it were me? And then the mind thinks right away, oh, I would give it away. Give some to Spirit Rock, I give to this, I give to that. But then they think, well, I wouldn't give it all away. <laughs> Before I gave it away, I would certainly help my children pay off their mortgages. You never know, times could be bad. You, you, don't, you, want, you don't want them to be carrying big mortgages. Well, okay, after the mortgages, they give it all the way for sure, after the mortgage. But wait a minute, you know, uh, the, just maybe one whatever it is that I always wanted. And this is all hypothetical money. It didn't even happen. But it's the mind deciding what it would do with hypothetical money if it had it, having trouble giving it away. And it's really, uh, it's, it's really I think, not just a fun idea to think about or, um, you know, when we're all moral people here, none of us is not, but how easy it is to be intrigued by, uh-oh, I could have. And the opposite of that is I don't need. And from a dharmic point of view, uh, I don't need anything is really the place of, of complete liberation. Ajahn Jemnian used to say, if I come and teach here and a lot of people come, I feel great and I teach. And if nobody shows up to a teaching, it's quiet, I can just sit here and meditate, I feel great, so I just sit here. And if a lot of people come, they bring a good lunch and I can really have a wonderful lunch, it's great, I eat it. And if nobody comes and they don't bring a lunch offering and there's nothing to eat, that's great, because I'm a little too fat anyway. <laughs> that somehow to have a mind that could say, However it is, it's great. Just like this. I don't need anything. The second line of the 23rd Psalm is, I shall not want. And I think it means not about green pastures or waters, or I, I, although those are the metaphors. 
I think it means my mind will not be in a condition of tension, needing to have something more than it has. In any given time, it's like this. This is what's here. And I think that that's the piece that the Buddha's talking about between the second and the third noble truth, that life is challenging, inevitably blows up these dust storms. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? I don't like this. I do like this. The mind has the possibility of grokking what's happening and saying, look at this, or manipulating or trying to manipulate what's happening and making an imperative. It shouldn't be happening. It should be another way. Someone told me the other day that we should take, sh we should. It would be good if we took should as a part of speech out of the grammar. Because when we say it should be different, you know, we shouldn't have world hunger. There's enough to feed people. What we really mean is I'd really like for us to feed everybody equitably. Uh, should mean somebody should have done it and they slipped up or, you know, it should. If we could have, we would have. Uh, should is a funny part of speech. And we give ourselves a lot of trouble also. I should have done this, I should have done that. I w when I mean to say, I wish I had, and I didn't, so I'll do it now. And it doesn't, it takes, uh, uh, it takes the opprobrium out of it. It doesn't make it a mistake on my part. If I, when we know better, we do better. That's Maya Angelou. When we know better, we do better. That's a great line. So I think that that's the wisdom that the Buddha is teaching, that what we are wanting to learn is not how to make do with less, but how to, how to recognize what we have, how to do, you know, how to live skillfully and wisely and uh, meaningfully in this world, and to not have imperative that it needs to be otherwise. I think that's the real generosity, giving away imperative. I would have wanted this, but I don't have it, so. Does that make sense to you? And I think when I think about, somebody told me, don't talk, somebody said to me recently, they say, don't talk about training the mind, it makes it sound too mean, discipline. So I said, well, but we're doing, you know, it's bhavana, is mind training. So we'll think of another word. So what I am thinking of is calling it um, habituating the mind, not training the mind, that sounds like boot camp. Habituating the mind to the pleasure of non-struggle. Now that definitely, we've done the, we've done the whole morning backwards. Um, but I think you're here on Wednesdays because that's what we talk about here. And I think this is a really important piece I keep saying, sit, so they'll be quiet. But anyway, this is the very important thing. I think that we come here as, I come here, as the same as you do, to hear Dharma. It wouldn't matter too much to me. It'd be the same if somebody else taught. I like to listen to other people teach Dharma. It's convenient for me to teach on Wednesday, so I might as well teach. But it's the hearing of the Dharma. It's not so significant who says it. It's consoling to me to say these truths over and over again in case I forgot. Or in, I don't forget them, but in case they are not living high in my mind in terms of the choices I'm making. It would be really hard to be talking about this and not living it, not walking the talk. It would feel very peculiar. 
the word in the in the uh, in the text is often called he they said talking about the Buddha said he expounded the law, so <laughs> it doesn't matter who expounds it. Other people listen to it and they get it. All right, now we'll see. This is the instruction for the sitting for today. Uh, and then we'll talk about how it worked for you. Sort of a melange of sit in a way that's comfortable, make yourself comfortable. Smile a little bit. Thich Nhat Hanh always says, smile a little bit. Relaxes your face. Feel your body here in whatever shape it is. Eyes open, eyes closed. Feel the room with your whole body, the temperature of the room on your skin, the pressure of the chair or the floor. Here is this breathing body. It expands and it relaxes back and then expands and relaxes back. Even if we're sitting still in a quiet room, the experience of body breathing is a very lively experience. Let the attention rest in that liveliness. I say, here's this, here's this consciousness, consciousness of, consciousness of touch and hearing and smell, energy, Sounds coming and going. Breath coming and going. Some people particularly like to rest their attention in the breath coming and going as an anchor of the attention in the body. With the body, actually. And thoughts come and go. And beyond all of that, beneath all of that, is a certain stillness and a certain ease. Everything else is arisings and passings, sounds and thoughts and pressures all arising and disappearing 
into the fundamental spaciousness of stillness. You don't have to try very hard. There's a way of everything not being a problem. Thoughts come and go, not problems. Breath comes and goes. Nothing to fix, nothing to manipulate. The Tibetans like to say all difficulties are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. Things come and go, but they're not problematic. It's a way of just allowing. So we'll practice that. 